Hello and welcome. This is Johan Trokmea from the Nordea Thematics team and here in the studio at Nordea I have with me my colleague Victor Solnebeck. And good to be back for another podcast. Absolutely. And the last podcast we had was about our Nordea in Mind topic, crisis targets. How corporates work with public financial targets and how that can affect the value of a company. But today we are going to have a chat about our new Nordea in Mind, about another exciting topic, this time generative AI, artificial intelligence. So a very different topic to financial targets, but uh, similar in the way that it's it's uh, one of our favorite topics. Uh, so w- we have written about this back in 2019, uh, and, and the reason for why we wrote uh, wrote about AI back in 2019 was pretty much the same as it is today, uh, in that uh, there was a kind of large hype uh, about it, and, and with that a, lot, uh, a large amount of uncertainty. Uh, and uh, Basically, AI models starting to take off, uh, performing better, and, and uh, this has a lot to do with internet proliferation and, and uh, big data, and, and, and uh, yeah, simply better pro- processing pow- uh, power uh, for this data. Uh, but AI as a concept is, is quite old. Uh, I mean, it became an academic science back in the 50s, uh, actually, and, and uh, then the big commercial breakthroughs started coming some, uh, you, you could say, 10 years ago, uh, with the exponential growth in this computing power and, uh, and the surge in analyzable data. And the and, uh, this is what we're seeing now uh, as well, with uh, better models and uh, better processing power and, and uh, more data, right? I think we are literally seeing a victory in that pretty much all of us meet artificial intelligence, AI applications in our everyday lives, our private lives and our work lives. One example is targeted advertising. When we see customized recommendations pop up, that's driven by AI. We, we for example, see route planning when it comes to deliveries from internet shopping or when we use a taxi or an Uber uh, app. Uh, we see facial recognition being broadly used out there. Uh, if we or our kids play computer games, the opponents that we face are powered by AI. And for all streaming services, whether it's your playlist in Spotify, which I know is pretty peculiar, uh, or if it's my viewing list in uh, Netflix or HBO, the recommendations that pop up are also based on prior viewing or listening um, oh. and powered by, uh, by AI. Uh, it's become very big business for digital platform operators. And according to Statista, artificial intelligence as an industry uh, is going to be worth more than $200 billion dollars this year. Uh, and there was a lot of hype about this back in 2019, and, and there have been cycles of, of hype when it comes to AI. And, and just one way of showing kind of the, the level of hype currently is just look at the, the Google searches for AI, uh, w- which is at uh, the, the all-time highs. So, so it, it's, it's incredibly widespread at the moment. And there was this huge surge, this exponential peak back in late 2022, in November 2022 specifically. And the key thing that triggered this, that, that really drove this massive surge in uh, Google searches for AI, was that OpenAI released its ChatGPT chatbot, which is a, a chatbot interface uh, behind the large language model uh, called GPT 3.5. And they made this available for free for anyone who opens a user account with OpenAI. And ChatGPT is actually the fastest growing consumer software app in history so far. They got 100 million users in two months. And as of now, they have more than 180 million users, which is just over a year after they launched it initially. And it was quicker to reach 1 million users than prior apps such as Instagram, Spotify, Facebook, Twitter, now ridiculously called X, uh, Airbnb and, and Netflix. So pretty spectacular in how much attention it has got. 
Uh, I think it's quite fair to, to to then use this as proof of this this so-called hype, with uh, as you said, o- over 180 million people actually using this and uh, this service, and it has a lot to do with accessibility, right? With the the kind of easiness in, in which you can access this uh, this tool. So. Creating a user account with OpenAI, uh, it's pretty much like any other chatbot uh, out there. Uh, you just type in whatever you want to ask it or instruct it. Um, and as you say, I think almost anybody can do that. And we can see that from how many users are out there trying it out at the moment. And it's for free. So if you want to have access to their more advanced large language model, the, the GPT-4 model, that's also possible. But then you need to pay a subscription fee of about $20 a month. But if you've had experience with, for example, Nodia as a customer, interacting with the Nodia Nora chatbot in customer service at the internet bank, or if you maybe have had experience from an insurance claim or something like that, this is exactly the same. It's just that behind that chatting interface, you've got the GPT 3.5 language model, which is pretty impressive, trained on about 300 billion words. Global data in all types of forms you can imagine, like Wikipedia, encyclopedias, digital books and anything. And it has data on which it is trained up to June 2021. So ChatGPT doesn't know anything about anything that has happened anywhere in the world after June 2021. And the experience, I think you agree, Victor, when you interact with ChatGPT is pretty human-like, right? Uh, and I think that's that's one of the reasons why there is this huge buzz right now. You know, it, it's the accessibility and the fact that people, when they use it, you know, you don't need to be a programmer. You don't need to understand the models behind it. You can simply type in text as you would to, to, to another person. And then you get this uh, actually remarkable level of re- response to some extent. Uh, I mean, we, we, we're going to get into that. Mm. But, 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 you know, to a large extent, it, it is very human-like. Uh, we believe that this has a lot to do with, you know, spurring on the, the hype in AI and then... And, and, uh, why there is also this big expectation uh, for AI to, to actually be very beneficial and, and, and uh, drive productivity growth, uh, for example. Exactly. And it's not only enthusiasm and excitement, it's also some worry, some concern, because with an interaction with an artificial intelligence feeling so human, giving the impression of being human-like, we have had a lot of questions and many of them have been around areas such as, should I be worried about my job? Is AI going to step in and take over and make me redundant as a human worker? And there are even some concerns, uh, and we'll get back to that as well, about could an AI evolve into a superintelligence which would actually be hostile to humankind? Uh, oh, we're getting more into it now. That, that uh, the focus for this podcast is, uh, is this specifically these large language models. Uh, but sh- uh, do you want to take us uh, take us back a few years uh, to, to how it all started? Absolutely, and obviously it's uh, a, a gradual development. Although it has been very rapid in recent years, and it's simplifying to say that there is only one thing that has happened that has caused this to really take off and become a big commercial breakthrough and a bit of a hype. Uh, but but I think in order to make it a bit more visible what has generated this kind of uh, breakthrough, uh, one thing we can point to is this paper that was uh, put together by eight Google scientists uh, back in 2017. Uh, it was called Attention is All You Need. Quite a catch title. Ah, and, and there were good reasons for it being called that. Um, it introduced the transformer model architecture for large language models. And the transformer was inspired by a film, a 2016 film um, called Arrival. And in this film, which I think personally is very, very good, um, aliens visit Earth and they communicate in a language. They don't speak, they only communicate in writing. And in that language of the aliens, there are no linear sequences of words like we humans have in our sentences. They express entire sentences in a single symbol. 
So putting it very simply, the transformer introduced an approach called self-attention. And simplifying it to a very great extent, what that means is that large language AI models read entire sentences at once and they analyze all parts of that sentence and therefore garner much better context compared with generating sentences one word at a time. And I, I think the, you landed on the key word there at the end, the context, in that when you compare it to previous, previous similar models, language models, uh, they haven't really mastered that art to the same extent uh, as these models that we're seeing right now. Uh, in that previous, previous versions of, of, uh, of large language models or, or language models in general uh, have been more inclined to, to simply be you know, sentence finisher in that they, they, they read the last word you wrote and then predict what should it be next, uh, whereas these new models are, are much better at, at taking context into account. And why don't we get nostalgic just for a brief moment? Do you remember the T9 text input function in those old mobile phones with numeric keypads? I'm uh, old enough to do so, yeah. Barely, but Barely, still. yeah, yeah. Uh, no, but th- th- that's a good example. I mean, the, the T9, it, it uh, was very efficient uh, at what it did in helping people, people uh, text, uh, but this is a very good comparison in that it, it uh, was basically a statistical tool that used uh, word frequencies to predict you know, what is the most likely word that you're trying to write. And, and uh, this is a good example to, to just provide you with the context of, of uh, how's the development uh, been going in that uh, this is no longer the case for text prediction machines. So we've come quite, uh, quite a far away in that to some extent you predict what, what the next word is going to be based on what you're you know what you're trying to type if you're mistyping uh, but you're also taking into account you know the user's own preferences you know what have you been typing before you're also taking into account the context and in, in what you're writing etc uh, so, so these models are, are becoming much more accu- uh, accurate and just for the sake of uh, listeners out there who are not familiar with the t9 function or those old-style mobile phones, what did it actually do? How did it work? So basically, when you were pressing the, the, the button, so 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, um, instead of you know having to circle through the letters uh, that each uh, button represented, uh, it basically helped you in that if you... Know, pressed a four and a, and a three based on the combinations of those letters it then gave you suggestions uh, for the most common words using those uh, those combinations of letters so you could select those suggested words yeah. instead of typing letter by letter exactly. all the time and so reducing the number of fingertips uh, yeah exactly reducing the number of of, uh, of clicks yeah well large language models are it may sound unkind but they are actually kind of a similar concept in that they are word predictors Um, or sentence or phrase predictors, more like it now. They are today trained on huge data sets, billions or trillions of words, and this comes from web scraping, books, encyclopedias, Wikipedia, whatever you might imagine as a digital information or data source. Uh, They use the info from that data in algorithms, which are, as with all artificial intelligence, based on mathematical optimization. And then they analyze how words and sentences and whole paragraph with other words. So when you ask them something, they predict what words or phrases or sentences are most likely to come next to be what we expect them to give us, given what it is that we're asking for. So all that data which they have been fed and the computing power, as you mentioned, that is now available for them to process all that information have made them much, much more accurate in actually responding with what we are likely to be requesting. And that's why it seems so human in nature to us. 
uh, and the way in which we uh, we interact with this interface and and, and uh, you know typing typing in in text into a, a chat and then getting human like responses uh, but also other other generative ai uh, ai areas uh, where you can for example in, instruct a, a program to create a video for you or an image based on your input and 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 your kind of human like input you don't need to program anything you, you can just instruct uh, one of these generative ais for you know image generation video generation it could be music it could be different types of of, of uh, uh, generation uh, based on on uh, ai and it's quite impressive what these large language models can do uh, and in our nodi on your mind report to show how good they are we as always did interviews in the report and we decided to do one of the interviews with chat gpt one of the funnier interviews i think we've done if I you can call it an interview we cannot enough urge listeners out there, if you haven't read the report, to actually take a look at the report, and at least if you're not going to read anything else in it, look at the interview with ChatGPT. You will not be disappointed. Uh, we felt, who better to ask, right, than the AI itself? So we asked it a question about the implications for humans from AI, but we asked it to answer the question as different personas. So ChatGPT answers as the Terminator from the films. Natural choice, of course. Yeah, had to be. Um, we asked it to answer as Yoda from Star Wars, uh, Eeyore the donkey from uh, Winnie the Pooh. A bit depressing, but still. Absolutely, as you would expect with Eeyore. And we asked it to answer as Gollum from The Lord of the Rings. Uh, and we asked it to answer as itself, so yeah. you can compare with all the other personas. Uh, have a look at it. It, it, it is quite fun, and and and, and indeed, the, these models are quite impressive. Uh, but it's it's uh, you know in all of this 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 marvel and, and using these models and, and getting these results, it is important to remember that, that it, it's it is a new technology, right? And you mentioned you wanted it. It's it's based on maths. That, that that's what it is. It's based on programming. It's based on architecture. It's based on maths. So it's not you know some black magic going on in the background. It's it is something understandable in the way that it is constructed, and it is a new technology. And uh, you asked before, you want a kind of rhetorical question, will AI take our jobs? And, and, and looking at that, we would simply remind ourselves that we have, over you know, a few hundred years or thousands of years, gone through technological developments. And uh, some of them, uh, you know, bigger than others, uh, but still, uh, we, we would like to compare this new technological development with previous, previous ones. And, and uh, the mechanism in, in you know, how our jobs are affected is that some jobs would be replaced, some jobs would be changed. And, and uh, what will happen then? Will people simply be unemployed? Well, no. Uh, the quick and, and dirty answer is that people find other things to do, right? So just as an example, uh, one thing could be mechanization of, of farming. I mean, in the 1950s, looking at the U.S. workforce data, uh, 24% of the workforce was employed in, in farming. And in 2022, it's 4%. Does this mean that, you know, all these people were simply unemployed? Well, no, not really. Service was 7% of the workforce back in the 50s, and 18% today. So the, the, the kind of workforce composition changes along with these, uh, with these technological uh, developments. And we always, in our reports, try to be concrete. Uh, and we wanted to try to, in some way, put some numbers on, okay, so how could generative AI impact human jobs? And given that we're a Nordic bank, uh, this is our home turf, the Nordic region, we did a uh, simple analysis of the labor market in Scandinavia. We wanted to look at it on a Nordic basis, but the data wasn't quite comparable for Finland, so we, we focused on Norway, Denmark, and Sweden, Scandinavia. And Scandinavia has a workforce of about 11 points 7 million people at present. So we started by just extrapolating the trend growth for different 
types of jobs in the Scandinavian labor market uh, based on the historical growth rate for different types of jobs between 2015 and 22. And the key here is that different jobs will be affected in in a different way. And one of the highlights is that that looking at AI as a technology, it is not a technology that will simply replace an entire job. It is more a kind of task-based improvement or task-based replacement. So that certain things that you do on a day-to-day basis uh, is what's uh, uh, going to be replaced or or at least made much more efficient. Uh, But looking at this trend of of, uh, job growth in the Nordics, it's quite interesting how it's already quite in line with what, with what we would expect uh, it would look like in terms of you know better automation and better AI uh, AI efficiencies etc so when it comes to uh, to the professions that you would expect to to grow uh, we're seeing uh, areas such as business and legal professionals uh, stem professionals I mean someone needs to needs to, to develop these models and, mm. and use these models uh, but also I mean natural things such as healthcare workers it's going to be pretty difficult to replace that with uh, with general uh, generative AI models, uh, but then looking at at uh, you know the weakest kind of relative growth, uh, one uh, one would be office support, uh, where you can find a lot of efficiencies from these new technologies. And STEM professionals, we could probably simplify as technology related yeah. uh, to put another label on technology it. engineering exactly. Yeah. Well, keeping it in a sort of simple framework, one way to describe it would be that today, roughly 39% of Scandinavian jobs are what you could call more vulnerable to AI replacement, and 29% of Scandinavian jobs are more resilient towards AI replacement. And this mix of jobs in the workforce that we might see in the coming years um, is probably going to change. And and to give some kind of idea of how much could it change, well, on a five-year view, if you look out towards 2028, it might shift from a 40 to 60 split in the Scandinavian workforce today towards more like a 42-58. So significant, but not a complete turning upside down of the Scandinavian job market. And this is, uh, you know, looking at AI and what it actually means, because uh, we're talking about, you know, making tasks more efficient, and we're talking about, uh, you know, uh, is the fact that, that AI is going to be more implemented, will that mean that people's jobs will be at risk? Well, in the end, what we're actually talking about is productivity, right? And and uh, we, we wrote about this uh, a few years back uh, in, a, in a Day on Your Mind report titled Industry 4.0, and basically our case was that uh, in the OECD, uh, in, in recent times, we haven't really seen uh, much of a productivity growth compared to what we've seen historically. And looking at AI as a new technology, this could be just what we need to get productivity growth back to to more long-term historical reasonable levels, you could say. Uh, so, so taking that into account and and and, and uh, you know looking at how it would affect the job market, the nightmare scenario would of course be that we get a productivity uh, boost but we don't really get any real GDP boost uh, from this productivity, which then in turn would mean that people would simply lose their jobs, right? Because you you, you work the same hours, but everyone gets more productive, uh, meaning that that, uh, people will no longer need to be employed. Uh, So for example, if we we were to raise uh, AI-induced labor productivity by 1.5 percentage points, we could maintain the same GDP growth, uh, with 9% less people uh, in, in, in the workforce. So all that's equal, that would be an extra 9% Scandinavian um, unemployment. 
and that would of course be a disaster theoretically exactly but that's not really what we're arguing is it no it could be a very good and juicy tabloid headline but we know from experience and not least from this earlier no the only mind report that this is not the way the economy works productivity growth is a key driver arguably even perhaps the most key driver of gdp growth so greater productivity for the workforce would tend to drive higher gdp it would almost certainly boost gdp So what realistically we instead should consider is what will be the combination we might see for the Scandinavian workforce in the future from use of generative AI in terms of, on the one hand, higher productivity for all the workers, but on the other hand, greater GDP growth. Um, So for example, uh, 1.5% higher productivity growth plus 1% higher GDP growth might mean Together, in combination, 367,000 fewer jobs in Scandinavia, whereas, for example, 0.6% higher productivity and 1% higher GDP growth would actually be a net 300,000 more jobs in Scandinavia. So the likely realistic outcome could be somewhere in between and maybe perhaps theoretically on average more of a neutral impact on the workforce in terms of how many people would actually have jobs. But uh, moving away from, from, from looking at how our jobs will be affected and, and, and switching into, to, I guess, more of a high-stakes scenario. Uh, we've all seen the Terminator movies. An, an artificial general intelligence, Skynet, is, is uh, entrusted with U.S. strategic defense. It evolves into a superintelligence and it becomes self-aware. Scary scenario, right? And it decides in an instant that humans should be exterminated. Starts a nuclear war, tries to kill all of humans, uh, humankind. Could something like this happen, Johan? Well... It's almost a philosophical question. Uh, There are, uh, to be sure, many prominent AI industry profiles who have only this year seen and highlighted potential existential risks for humankind from AI. For example, the Future of Life Institute have called for a six-month pause in training of AI systems more powerful than GPT-4. The Center for AI Safety has made a public, what they call, statement on AI risk, uh, in which they're saying that mitigating risks of extinction from AI should be a global priority on par with pandemics and nuclear war. And the Frontier Model Forum is an AI industry body for self-policing that was established earlier this year by OpenAI, Anthropic, Google and Microsoft. So there are pretty powerful voices out there saying that we should take this very seriously. And speaking of powerful voices, uh, policymakers are, are weighing in as well. So the US and, and the UK announced uh, announced uh, a new AI safety institutes uh, at the, the Bletchley Park AI Safety Summit uh, in the UK in November 2023. And then for the US, this was part of a presidential executive order on safe, secure and trustworthy AI. And there was a Bletchley declaration signed by 28 countries, including the US, China, Brazil, Japan, as well as the EU. So we we really have to conclude that these potential, even though they may seem theoretical, existential risks from AI are taken very seriously. But the interesting question is, of course, how real are such risks right now? As of today, are we close to an artificial general intelligence? Uh, And I think most would agree in in, uh, the answer being a pretty clear no. Uh, I mean, we have different types of AI for different types of tasks, uh, but none of them are, are even close to, to what we would call uh, call uh, uh, general artificial intelligence. And then you can kind of split AI into four general types, if we were to simplify a bit. Uh, you have the reactive machines uh, that react and respond to, to prompts. Uh, they have no memory or a broader understanding of com- context. And then you have what we would call you know, limited memory AI uh, that learns from a limited amount of data and, and feedback, but doesn't really bank memory 
polymers over time. And, and this would include uh, most of these uh, LLMs. Uh, and then these two types are pretty much what we have today. Yeah. And then there is theory of mind AI, which can understand the mental state of humans and humans' needs and goals and motivations. And the fourth category of the four that you mentioned here is self-aware AI, which is able to understand human emotions and have their own emotions, needs, and beliefs. And those two types are hypothetical, and as of today, science fiction. But with all these warnings and and these initiatives, I guess a very relevant question is if AI then can be regulated. I mean, there are obviously initiatives and and, and efforts going on, uh, but uh, there is an inherent problem in that software is not really constrained by national borders, right? Software doesn't really take geographical context into account. So as long as there are countries which do not regulate, uh, AI can simply be developed and deployed there. Uh, That's very true. Any successful regulation or risk management for those existential AI risks we have highlighted here would, we think, need to be supranational. And how would you enforce universal global compliance? Uh, One potential template for how this could be approached would be the UN-sanctioned Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty from 1968. At that time, it was signed by 18 countries. Today, it has 191 signatories. So most of the world's countries have in fact signed the treaty. And at the time, in 1968, uh, it was expected that there would be between 25 and 30 nuclear weapon states in 20 years' time, so by 1988. And looking at the outcome, today there are nine. So you could hardly argue that it's been perfect, but it has clearly been effective in limiting the spread of nuclear weapons among the countries of the world. And quite importantly, the, the treaty is backed by powerful sanctions uh, and uh, enforcement, such as export controls of the Nuclear supply, uh, Suppliers Group and enhanced verification measures by IA, IAEA. And, and uh, any successful regulation of AI will likely require a similar approach, right? And you could also question if these theoretical risks related to an artificial general intelligence... Uh, which might be years and years out from now, should really be the top focus in managing AI risks today. What about the risks from AI that we face here and now? And, and we do have uh, have more more current risks uh, related to AI. AI. Uh, and I think the most the most prominent ones would be disinformation and, and uh, what, what you would call fake news, uh, which can actually be a factor in destabilizing society and, and, and leading to to conflicts. Uh, and then you can also include uh, you know bioengineering of pathogens and and, and similar things, uh, which of course can can create a pandemic. And, and these could theoretically become human extinction level threats. Uh, and and the industry players and and policymakers understand. And, and are zooming in on these risks. And, and I mean, there is a lot of focus on, on educating uh, people uh, in terms of you know being able to identify uh, fake images, uh, for example, uh, but also de- developing tools uh, to, to be able to detect uh, what is real and uh, what isn't. Yeah. So an, an artificial general intelligence may or may not ever materialize. We simply don't know. Um, it may not necessarily evolve into a superintelligence, It may not want to or be able to take control of human society. And it might be benevolent towards humans and a fantastic, useful ally. Uh, Or it could, and that would be the worst case theoretical scenario, be a Skynet from the Terminator movies that wants to kill us off. By us, I mean humankind. There are many ifs and buts. Uh, We shouldn't just brush it away. 
Uh, it is hypothetical, but it, but it is a risk. But there needs to be a focus on values and rules and priorities and goals for AI systems. Uh, and it remains, as we just discussed, to be seen how this could be approached in practice. But one more valid question we think worth asking, at least rhetorically in this context, is if you are among those who feel particularly worried that a superintelligence might try to take control over human society, uh, how much worse would it be than some of the human leadership that we've had in uh, years and years uh, going back through history? There have been a number of human leaders, I think we can agree, uh, who have not been fantastic or had the greater good for humankind or even for the countries that they have led at heart. I think we can can leave the listeners with a f- philosophical exercise for the Christmas period, right? Um, but summing up then, uh, I mean, the, perhaps the key point is that AI is, uh, we would call, simply another disruptive technology. Uh, as I mentioned before, it, it, it's not really some black magic going on. It, it, it is, you know, well thought out, well structured, and, 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 and it is understandable what, uh, what AI is doing. And these gener- uh, generative AI models, we would expect to, to uh, be a productive boost. For, for a lot of different works or a lot, lot of different uh, jobs, I should say. And it could boost GDP uh, by raising productivity. Uh, it will eliminate and, and change and add jobs. And I think with a net impact, not really that much worse than other previous you know, historical shocks. Uh, and and uh, there will be initiatives to regulate AI and some global initiatives similar to, to a nuclear non-proliferation, uh, probably, to regulate existential AI risks is quite likely. And I think that's a good place to round off today's chat. It's been fun, as always. Um, We will, as always, publish our last Nordea on your mind for the year, being a Highlights of the Year Christmas edition, where we sum up the various themes that we have explored in 2023. It's been pretty eventful. It's certainly not been boring. So watch out for that if you want a nice look back and summary on the year behind us. We wish all listeners a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year and look forward to um, welcoming you to new conversations in 2024. Thank you very much and goodbye.